welcome to Side Alpha Leadership, a podcast where leaders can share their experiences and discuss what leadership means to them. I'm your host, David Polikoff. Good afternoon and welcome to this month's edition of Side Alpha Leadership. Uh, my name is David Polikoff. I'm your host and I have the pleasure of talking with uh, Jason Gardner. I uh, had the pleasure of listening to Jason Gardner speak back in October of uh, 2019 uh, when he came to Maryland to talk to some police officers and I'm um, thrilled to have him on the show. So without uh, me going any further, Jason, welcome to Side Alpha Leadership. Hey, David. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So go ahead and give me a little bit of information about yourself and what you'd like the audience to know about you, your uh, history, and how you came to be about uh, where you are today and, and what you're doing. Sure. So I enlisted in the Navy straight out of high school and uh, with the intent of going to the SEAL teams. I went through boot camp, uh, my A school, which was Gunner's Main A school, my kind of training to the job that I would have in general in the Navy, and then I went to basic underwater demolition slash SEAL training, which is a selection course for SEALs. And I did 30 years in the SEAL teams. I started, you know, at the bottom and rose to the the highest levels you can get to as an enlisted man. I retired as a a master chief. I was the command master chief of uh, SEAL Team 5 and our Naval Special Warfare Group 1 training detachment. And I ran all the training there for the West Coast SEAL team. So this isn't the stuff you see on TV with people running with logs or, um, you know, that's our selection course. This is actually the sustainment training that SEALs do in preparation to go on deployments. Through that whole process, uh, you know, leadership wasn't something that, that I was interested in i never had any idea that i would wind up as a command master chief but it 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 was something that i just fell into because i wanted to stay around the seal teams and in order to stay in you you had to promote and take over these leadership positions i met jocko willink back in 1993 when he was an enlisted guy and i was very lucky that that he and leif wrote that book uh extreme ownership because I grabbed that uh, when it came out, and that was right at the point in time where I promoted out of the tactical levels of leadership into the executive levels of leadership. And what that means is I'm not out there doing the job every day with the guys. And, you know, as it later turned out, girls, I'm, I'm now I'm up in an office and I'm trying to get out and see everybody I've got working for me, but I'm detached and I'm at the next level. And, uh, that book really, really helped me out. Uh, there's a lot of things that, that I'd learned about leadership along the way that I was already doing correctly. And I didn't have names for, and there was some stuff that I was flat out doing wrong and it helped me correct those and helped me a great deal become a, a better leader. So I retired in, uh, April of 2019, and then went to work for Echelon Front, which is Jocko and Leif's leadership consulting agency or firm. And we go around to businesses and first responders and military. I mean, we talk to everybody, and we help them solve problems through leadership. And and here's the deal. 
if you've got more than three people working together, you have the same friction points that we have in the military. I mean, the problems that you have in the fire service, when you break them down, are pretty much the same problems that they're having over in the police department. And they're the same problems that they're having over at a software company. And they're the same problems that they're having over, um, you know, at a healthcare place. Because it's people dealing with people and people are crazy. So... There, there, there you have it. That's my uh, background, and that's what I'm up to today, thinking thinking about and talking about leadership. Yeah, I, I have to be honest. When I uh, first started my podcast last year, it was called Random Thoughts, and uh, I was just kind of talking to different people that in, that weren't necessarily in the fire service, but um, that I found their job to be interesting as the fire department's all I've ever known. And uh, I did a few shows with that, and then I went and listened to you talk. Actually, I read, I did read uh, the book um, Extreme Ownership, and uh, it was a really easy read, not saying that in a negative light, but as in you could follow it and really understand and get the information that you guys were, were putting out for what you learned in the military into everyday life. And, uh, and then I came, when you came to Maryland and I listened to you talk and, uh, it kind of made me say, you know what, there's, there's a missing component in my opinion, in the fire service, when it comes to leadership, we don't really have that mechanism to teach people leadership. Uh, it's mostly on the job training. Some people pick it up pretty quick and some people are a little slow on the uptake. Um, so I decided that I'm going to transition my podcast from this random thoughts to talking to just anybody to talking to people that are uh, in the business that have leadership traits, what they think leadership is, and then I changed the name to Side Alpha Leadership. So a lot of that has to do, you know, with listening to you talk, reading the book, and since then I've probably read about ten different books from different authors. Changed my major in college to organizational leadership just because. There's a lot of stuff out there that I didn't know that I feel I need to know in order to be a, a stronger boss. So before we, we transition into what we're going to talk about today, I have to ask, when you transitioned from the tactics to the strategy, and that's kind of what we say in the fire service, when you go from the doing to the actual uh, the strategy part, how difficult was that for you going from hands-on to having other people do the hands-on for you? It was horrible. Uh, I was, you know, I, I went from just getting things done and being outside and doing work to um, answering emails, going to meetings, and just dying slowly every day like I was being poisoned. And I just, I, I would finish the day up, be completely exhausted, yet I'd feel like I accomplished nothing. And that was difficult because I had just, I had the wrong perspective on it. So it, it was, it was important for me to understand the value of what I was doing and the value, what I felt that I was able to do when I moved into the, you know, out of our team rooms and into an office was doing the best. There's two things that I needed to do because there's a giant disconnect between those two levels. One, I needed to do a better job of communicating the guys down in the team room, hey, why why things are going on the way they're going? Why are we getting the gear that they that we're 
we're getting issued, not some other gear, why we're doing the training that we're doing and not some other training. And then make sure that I was pulling up the information unfiltered. And when I was going to these meetings where these decisions were getting made that were going to affect the guys on the ground and girls on the ground, that I was doing a good job of representing them correctly. And that, once I framed it in that sense, I found so much more value in what I was doing. I had like kind of a new mission and then, then, then going to work wasn't painful anymore, but there was a, there was an evolution I had to go through that, that was rough. I felt the same thing when I left, you know, riding the, the, the ladder truck and the engine company as a captain and transitioning into the battalion chief. And I'm going from tactics to strategy. And uh, when I first started the job as a battalion chief, it was, you know, I would see myself kind of getting angry because they weren't doing things the way that I thought that they should be done. Um, they were doing them differently. And uh, it took mm-hmm. a little while for me to, to understand. And I, and, I, and I had a captain, when I was a lieutenant, I had a captain that told me uh, over and over again, he said, Dave, you need to understand different is not wrong. It's just different. So just because they're not doing it how you would do it, if the outcome is is positive, you need to be able to let that go. And it took a while, and and that's where I started to really start to unravel this. Hey, there's smart people out there that do things differently and still achieve the positive outcome. So it doesn't have to be done the way that I do it. And it was easier for me to sort of let go and, and embrace the strategy portion of the job, as in, you know, I arrive on the scene and here's what I want you to do. You guys figure out how to do it and make sure you do it safely. Um, and then that all kinds kind of come in circle of what we're going to talk about today. You wanted to talk about humility. And, uh, you know, I'll let you get into what people think the definition of humility is and then what it actually is. So we'll go ahead and start the conversation now with uh, with humil- humility and, and we'll see where that takes us. Sure. I mean, I, I think it, 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 it's one of your most important leadership traits. And it, it's probably one of most your important traits as as a, as a good human. And a lot of people mistake humility for meekness. And that that's not the case. If you're a humble person, it doesn't mean that you're meek. What it means to me and what I think it truly means is that you're just admitting that you don't have all the answers and you always have room to improve. And if you ever get to that level where you think, yeah, I'm at the top of my game, I'm really good at this, and you're not paying attention, right behind that thought, two steps is complacency. And that will really, really, really bite you. So there was uh, my 2009 deployment to Afghanistan, and this was my last deployment as a tactical leader. Uh, I was uh, uh, a SEAL task unit senior enlisted advisor so I was a senior enlisted guy in in that SEAL task unit which is two SEAL platoons and this is later in our deployment we went on an operation and up until this point every time we engaged with the Taliban we did the absolute meat stomp on them we had better weapons we had better training and we had night vision and air cover and so we started to get complacent um, I really wasn't thinking through all the contingencies because I hadn't had to exercise many contingencies because we just kept winning until we came on this operation. And uh, we were going after a 
Taliban guy who was uh, a shadow governor, and he was an IED, make improvised explosive device. You know, he's building these things and then distributing around the country and 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 placing them. So we went to his compound. Uh, we inserted a terrain feature away, moved over some mountains, came down, seized the compound, immediately found a huge cache of weapons and uh, demolitions. Uh, we actually had some Taliban fighters come at us at night, which was odd. They usually didn't come at us during the dark because we had such an advantage. And uh, we were able to take care of them. And then we were going to remain there over day. Well, when we remain over day, we usually hold a couple compounds and we hold a piece of high ground. And I was on a high ground element. It was maybe this hill was the size of like a three-story building. And it was immediately adjacent to the, the compounds that we had seized. So we're up on this high ground. We're like, okay, let's dig in and make our fighting positions. And we start to attempt to fill our sandbags. Our standard operating procedure was everybody carries 10 empty sandbags so you can make yourself a defendable fighting position. Well, the ground is like concrete up there. It's rock. This whole mountain is just like a big boulder. There's no filling sandbags. And this is something that I should have thought about because most of Afghanistan looks exactly like this hillside and we'd actually gotten lucky in the past that we'd been able to fill up uh, uh, sandbags and make fighting positions. So we're not able to make fighting positions or, or fill sandbags. So we cop, we just go around and find all these rocks and boulders that we can actually move and make ourselves a real half-ass wall that is, our, is now our fighting position. Sun comes up the next day. Uh, there's a village nearby. All the women and children leave the village, which is an indicator that it's it, we're going to get after it. And uh, then the fighting age males start coming in, but they don't they don't start shooting at us right away. They take their time. They figure out where we are. And then here's the problem about fighting in the mountains: you can own one piece of high ground they can take all the high ground around you. And that's what they did. They took every piece of high ground around us um, and got settled in. And so now it's like 10, 1030. We can see a Taliban fighter on a piece of high ground about a thousand yards away. There's high winds. So we start shooting at him with our 300 wind mag and we're missing him by inches. And he's pulling his big machine gun, his PKM behind a rock. And then he's coming back out. We'll shoot at him again, just barely miss him because of the wind. And then he'd push it back and then come back out. He's pretty brave. And while this is... Wow, I'm getting a lot of noise here. Yeah. I don't know if that's on my end. While, while, he's, uh, while he's doing that, it's getting hotter and hotter. And I take off my body armor and my helmet because it's now like 105 degrees. And we're the high ground position. There's no shade. So, so think of that. I'm shooting at a guy with a machine gun. And we all think it's okay. And, and I'm the leader. So this is on me. Okay to take off body armor and helmet. Well, about half an hour later, they hit us with a coordinated attack that was kicked off by a salvo of probably 12 to 15 rocket propelled grenades 
and then a steady stream of PKM fire. And luckily, when that happened, I happened to be right on top of where I took off my body armor and helmet. So I'm laying flat out on my belly, you know, next to this janky rock wall that we built with literally 10 inches above my head, bullets just stitching the top of that rock wall. And I look up and I can see that rock wall start to erode under the bullets impacts. And I just figured at that point, yeah, okay. The, the trajectory this is moving at, um, we are, we're going to, I'm going to get shot here in probably just a couple minutes and I'm probably going to die here. Luckily, that wasn't the case. Uh, we were able to get some air cover in and that's, you know, a whole other angle of the story. But the bottom line is because I'd lost my sense of humility, because I'd gotten a little arrogant, I've gotten, you know, other people call it the disease of victory. We got complacent. And it almost cost a lot of lives. And I'm really, really lucky that it didn't. You know, on, on my combat, the rest of that combat deployment and combat deployments since then, I never took off my protective gear. I always thought about, you know, hey, what are all the contingencies and, and what, what, what's everything that could go wrong and how could we deal with it? And then the, here's the big thing. If somebody said, why are we doing it this way? And my answer was, and I've set this up in a mental checklist. If my answer is, this is the way we've always done it, then I'm like, okay, I need to take a step back because that's not a good enough answer. Because the battlefield is constantly changing. The, the whole world is, the world's evolving around us at, at a breakneck pace. And just because we're doing things one way, doesn't mean that's the best way to do it. So there's there's always ways to improve. Now, if somebody says, why are we doing it this way? And you can articulate to them, well, hey, we've tried it these other methods and we found that they're not safe or they're not efficient. And here's why. Okay, that's a good answer. But the because I said so, and this is the way we've always done it, those aren't good answers. And those would be huge red flags to anybody to go well you know what let me take a step back let's 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 take a good honest look at it and see if there isn't a better way to do it that's uh and it's it's funny because you know you talked about complacency and in the fire service we have this uh this mantra that we constantly say that complacency kills um you know we we are going into burning buildings and, and, and dangerous environments and uh you know we rely on our gear making sure that we're wearing our gear correctly uh it's my job to make sure that my guys are going in and uh are doing the job it's a dangerous job there's risk but as safe as possible but we can't be complacent or, or be uh um be complacent with uh what uh the job is and what the dangers are in the job and and uh i picked up a um it was a saying, and I don't remember if it was from Jocko's podcast or it was from one of the books that I read, but it kind of stuck with me. It was uh, it was said that uh, on the heels of your comfort zone is complacency, and on the heels of complacency is an injury or death. And uh, I try to push that out to my guys all the time saying, hey, 
just because we're running these bread and butter calls all the time or we're working on an interstate uh, on a car accident, you have to have your head on a swivel. You have to have your gear on. You have to do things as safe as possible and, and be on the lookout for what's going on around you as well as for your fellow firefighter because uh, the moment you let your guard down, it's going to bite you. So that entire story that, that you told right there, you know, you kind of got into that rhythm of, well, this is how we've always done it. Everything has always worked out fine. And it's one time that you decided to have that little bit of complacency uh, and almost bit you in the ass. And again, uh, you, you came out okay, but you learned something from that. And, and uh, I think that in the fire service, we have to learn the same thing. That's why we have our hot washes, our after action reports. Um, we try to, to find out what was what went wrong, uh, how can we improve that so we don't do that again. Uh, there's another saying in the fire service that uh, when you talk about, you know, we've always done it that way, there's, there's two things that firefighters hate, the way things are and change. And we've always come up, we've always come up with this, this, uh, well, we do it this way because we've always done it that way, but things evolve, uh, building construction has changed. So we have to take a look at how we do things and is there a better way to do things? And, and there's a lot of resistance to change the, uh, getting into the why, and I'll let you talk about that of, uh, you know, why we do things when somebody asks the question, why do we do things? It's not that they're being disrespectful, um, how do you deal with that and, and how do you talk to people when you have to explain the why? It, it's an opportunity for me to look at like, okay, well, let me see, let, let me formulate why I think what I, what I'm thinking and then really war game it. So it's, it's a fantastic opportunity when someone says, why are we doing this? this way why don't we do it as opposed to this and when you sit down let's like okay let me take a non-biased look at it and see if there isn't a way to improve it and and this is another thing that i want to focus on humility here too it's like i think when i was 30 years old i pretty much felt like i had the world figured out and then a decade later i turned 40 and I look back at my 30-year-old self and I kind of chuckled at all the things that the, the ideas that I had were completely wrong and that, you know, I didn't know anything when I'm 30, but now that I'm 40, I've got everything figured out. Well, now that I'm 50, I, I don't, like, I've come to the conclusion, like, I'm never going to have everything figured out and I always have room to improve and this opens up. Like, it's basically like if you think you have everything figured out, you're walking around in blinders and you're not seeing every angle to any problem or anything, really. And so now when you, when you take those blinders off and you admit that you have room to improve and you can do better and there's other ways to look at it, everything, now that your potential to improve has, has now just gone up, you know, exponentially. And so th that's really important and, and and here's another thing it's interesting when some of the greatest improvements that you come up with as in the seal teams or or any organization it usually doesn't come from people who've been doing things for a while it comes from someone who's got a fresh look at things and they're not jaded by a bunch of experience and it may be someone that's not even a seal, but just looking from the inside out and has a different perspective goes, Hey, well, I was wondering why you're not doing this as opposed to that. And if you look at it honest, it's like, geez, that never occurred to us. And you could, 
navigate that change. You know, here's a great story about people hating change. Uh, it was right about 2001 when we finally got enough, enough night vision for everyone in a SEAL platoon to wear it. So up until that point in a SEAL platoon, it would be basically the point man, rear security, and uh, the patrol leader in a 16-man SEAL platoon that would have night vision on them. And they didn't wear it full-time. They just had it with patrol a little ways, take it out, and look with it. Well, we finally got enough night vision that everybody could wear it. And here's the thing. It, it, takes, it takes a little bit to get used to wearing the night vision because your depth perception's thrown off and, and all that. But once you've got it, it's awesome because you can see in the dark. Hello? It still took us a year and a half to get every SEAL to wear their night vision when they were all patrolling you know, out, out at night because people hate change that much. And it's, you know, that's not fire service. It's not, you know, law enforcement. It's, it's across the board. It's just the craziness of, 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 of being a person. It's funny, uh, you know, when we talk about change uh, in the fire service and, and I, I try to show people, I said, let's, let's take a step back when we talk about change and these new things that are coming on and everybody's resistant. Back in the seventies, um, firefighters would go into burning buildings and they wouldn't wear their SCBA or their self-contained breathing apparatus. They would they would go in basically with maybe they wouldn't even wear hoods, the protective hoods to, to keep their ears and their, their necks from burning. Um, that's how they fought fire. They would push in as far as they could without the without bringing their air with them. And then we move forward into the 80s and 90s where the SCBA started becoming more prevalent and uh, some people still wouldn't wear them. You talk to a firefighter now in, in 2020 and they couldn't imagine how can you go into this hot, smoky environment um, with all these toxic gases and smoke without an SCBA. Well, that's how we've evolved. Yeah. People wearing hoods. Uh, the turnout gear has, has gone from canvas to Nomex to, um, to uh, PBI uh, with, with, um, with a little bit of Kevlar mixed into it. Same thing with the helmets. They've gone from being tin pots to you know this composite, leather to composites. So there's always change. Uh, I want to circle back to something you talked about as, as uh, how you have, you know, somebody that has a lot of experience and then you have these newer people that are coming in and asking, you know, like, well, why, why are you doing it this way? Why can't we do it this way? Wouldn't this be better? How as a boss can you take a non-biased look at other people's ideas without feeling like they are belittling you or making it appear that you don't know as much as you need to know. How do you overcome that? Yeah, you, it's not easy. It starts with checking your ego. And so if you, if you, if you say to yourself that, um, you know, the best person's able to control their ego, that's the first thing that'll give you like, okay, I want to be a good person. I need to check my ego a little bit. And, uh, um, take a step back and, and look at why we're doing things the way, you know, why we're doing the way things, the way we're doing them. And that, it it just starts with checking your ego and challenge yourself to say, okay, well, let me see if I'm good enough at this job. I've been doing it for a while to actually explain to someone else why we're doing things the way we're doing them. And, uh, um, is there a better way? So there, there, there's, there's a way that, that uh, um, we treated our new guys in the SEAL teams 
and I, I, I don't know how different the fire service is, but we didn't really treat our, and, and I don't know what they treat them like now, but we didn't treat new guys very well. And that always kind of annoyed me because it's like, if I want to develop a new guy, then I can't just refer to him as new guy and dummy and constantly have everything like he's, he's uh, going through some, you know, ritual in order to get into some college fraternity. It's like, Hey, I should be talking to them by their name, explain things to them in a manner that is uh, responsible and, Oh shoot. I'm, I'm word searching here a little bit, but not to be condescending uh, or anything like that. Yeah. Not, not to be condescending. Cause that's just, that's, that's, that's kind of terrible. So the thing is, is like, if you know, you have a, uh, somebody that's young that say, Hey, why do we have to do this? And then it's like, Hey, you know what? That's a great question. Let's sit down and explore why we're doing this. And I'm going to tell you why we're doing things from this direction and um, in this manner. And, and do you, do you have a better way to do it? And let's, let's talk about it. And maybe some of the things you even try it, you know, there, there used to be a way that we got head counts in, in the SEAL teams because we would, because uh, um, we were never really put on under enough pressure. So like through the nineties, there was really no big sustained combat and even into 2001, there, there were small firefights in here and there, but there wasn't huge pressure. And one of the ways that we were getting head counts was the leading petty officer would play duck, duck, goose. We'd get in a perimeter and a guy would go around and literally count heads. And that works great if you're in a calm, sterile environment where no one's forced to move around, but it doesn't work at all when things are crazy and people are moving and you're trying to break off from a really dynamic situation and you need a head count, but you can't leave until you get one, but things are still moving around. And so we had to fundamentally break it down. Like, okay, we've been doing it this way for the last 12 years and it isn't working. What's a better way to do it. And then we shifted over to where we would get our, our fire team leaders would get our head counts um, because a fire team leaders, he's in charge of four people and four or five people and he he always knows where they're at so we would do it in that manner and you know it was kind of this cyclical pattern of of doing the hot washes like you said you do in the fire service where you finish and you go okay what do we do right what do we do wrong what can we do better and it's all that so you know checking your ego and and a helpful thing to check your ego is to say hey i can't improve and i can't be the best leader or best firefighter or best law enforcement officer, whatever it is, unless I'm open to looking at different ideas and, and seeing how I can improve. Yeah. When, when, uh, when I first started, when I was 18 years old, um, some of the, the officers that I had were, were from the Vietnam era. They, they were, you know, they're long since retired, but, uh, the, when you were a rookie or the, the new guy or the FNG or the boot, whatever they wanted to call you, um, you were, seen and not heard you didn't ask questions you uh you know you said here's your mop you know here's the sponge to do dishes make sure the coffee pot's full make sure the firehouse is clean toilets are clean that that was pretty much your job for a year um you had you didn't really have a voice um 
that's kind of how, and there was some hazing and things like that. I mean, we, we kind of frown upon the hazing now with the rookies. Um, but now I try to approach it as everyone has worth. And I, I do my best when we get new rookies on the shift to sit down and talk to them and get a little bit of background and where did they come from? Um, you know, a lot of the firefighters that we're hiring now are not just 18 year old kids. These are smart adults that went to college or have a military background that have worth, have things to offer. And, and it took a long time, almost six years of doing the job as battalion chief to, to say, okay, I need to reevaluate how I am approaching the people in the field and get a little more information from them because they have things to offer, which could ultimately kind of shape the future of the fire service, or at least maybe shine a light on uh, the way we do things, maybe find a better way to do things, or maybe bring some experiences that they learned from, from the military or from their past life. So we did, we did treat our rookies pretty poorly. And I think that we've kind of come around a little bit to making sure that the, the, the new guys that we have coming in are not only smart, that can do the job, but also understand that they have worth to the organization. And I think that that really starts to bring this, this buy-in that, that everybody has worth, everybody at the kitchen table has a voice, and uh, they deserve to be heard. Yeah, and, and so I – absolutely. And – the, uh, the other thing to bring up is, is I hope people don't think that I'm saying that, uh, you know, there is a process that new members go through where they're proving their worth to the organization and they're on a probation. And I'm not saying that probation should go away or new guys should start calling shots right away. But I, I think that a lot of your improvements are probably going to come from somebody with a fresh perspective and it's important that you just at least discuss it with them, you know, and, and, and the way, the way you're doing it and talking to them is, is exactly how you do it from my perspective. Yeah. It took a little bit of me to, to understand it, to recognize that just because I'm asking questions of the new guys doesn't mean that I'm not a good you know leader or I'm not a good boss or I don't know what I need to know. There's there's a lot of things that I don't know that I, I learn every day. And I tell people, I said, the day that you walk on the job thinking that you know everything or you can't learn anything else is the day you need to retire because you become a liability or you're dangerous. And uh, you need to learn something every day. Read a book. Learn something about the job. Learn something that's not about the job that you can maybe apply to the job. Um, and that's you know, where I start talking to people from different organizations, whether it be, you know, police, medical field, fire, even now in the military. And I, I learned things. And then how can I take that stuff that I learned and kind of tweak it to the fire service and, and push it out there? Uh, especially and, and with our new rookies, they're, they're on probation for a year. So we're definitely not getting rid of the probationary and they do have to prove their worth. They get tested every quarter. Um, they have written assignments that they have to do. Um, but, uh, they do prove themselves as they go until they come off the probation probationary period. And ultimately as the battalion chief, I have the responsibility to write their acceptance letter that they can continue to be uh, employed or not to be employed or if they need to extend their probation. So that's not going away. But the fact that we treat our rookies better than we did in the past, where we're actually explaining our history and explaining how we've evolved and why we do things. I think that that whole learning how to explain why we do things, if you can do that successfully, then I think that you are on top of your game. Whereas if it's just like, because we've always done it that way, 
you've lost that person and you've kind of lose a little bit of respect in, in your leadership uh, from that person if you can't explain why we do things. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, um, you know, and it just comes down to like, you just need to treat everybody with dignity and there's, there's hoops that the new people have to jump through and it just, how you set those hoops up and how you frame it is, uh, is, you know, what's going to be a good way to do it in a way that isn't effective. And if you're condescending and talking down to somebody, do they really take on board anything that you're telling them? Probably not. But if, if you sit down and, you, and you're talking to someone as if they're they're a person and not uh, a second rate, whatever, you know, citizen, hey, there's these, these things moving forward. They're going to listen and then that's just going to make your life easier because they're doing their job better and they're part for the team better. And it's going to it's going to result in the team doing a better job as a whole. Yeah, I remember when I started teaching at the training academy, I <clears throat> had these instructors that were senior to me, and I'd watch them, and they, they would run our, our training academy like it was a boot camp, and uh, they would yell at the recruits and, you know, be up in their face, and, and you know, it kind of struck me a little bit as a as a state-certified instructor, I'm thinking to myself, well, I'm not trained to be a drill instructor. I was never in the military. I, I know that there's got to be some training for that, so why are we yelling at these recruits and screaming in their face? To me, the moment you start yelling at somebody, they shut down and tune you out. So at that point, you are not effective to them anymore to more explain what we're doing, uh, teach them. You know, they're coming into a career that they've never done before to teach them. Um, to me, I learned that I don't want to be that instructor that's yelling and screaming in somebody's faces. I'm not trained to tear somebody down to their core and then build them back up. It's more of I'm going to teach you how to be a firefighter and to do the job. And then when you get into your station, you'll learn the craft even more. Um, I think that all comes down to uh, as a leader, um, if you're somebody that is able to explain and able to uh, guide somebody as opposed to screaming at somebody and, and rule by fear, uh, I think that you're going to get a lot more worth. And I know that you wanted to talk a little bit about relationships. So let's kind of transition into that if you want to. And how do we build the relationships, not only of the people that are below us, but what about our bosses and how do we build relationships so we can kind of, you know, lead from the top as well as lead from below to try to get our point of view across, you know, when we build these relationships? Yeah. So, uh, I'm going to tell two stories here. Um, first one, when I was a young seal and I was deployed on, uh, uh, a ship, we used to deploy out on ships and this was in 1995. We wound up going to Somalia that year, but I was deployed on a ship my leading petty officer was this guy, Monty Tree Size, and he had a lot of life experience. He'd been, he had broken service. He was at Los Angeles LAPD for a while, and he, he came back into the um, Navy, back into the SEAL teams. And, you know, as, as my leader, I watched him all the time. And this is another thing to keep in mind in a leadership position. You're never off the clock. Your, your subordinates are watching you on on the job, off the job, they watch how you talk to your kids. They watch how you, you treat your wife. They watch how you talk about other leaders. So you need to always keep that in mind as a leader. But anyway, so I'm watching him. And when he'd go through the chow line 
on the ship, he knew everybody behind the chow line and the other guys working back in the galley there and would be laughing and joking with them. And when he would walk around the ship, he, he, he knew everybody on the ship that worked on the ship. And you kind of have a celebrity status as a Navy SEAL deployed on a ship. And some guys would just act like they were better than everybody else, but not money. And I noticed that when he went through the chow line, he got more food than the rest of us, and he always got the best food. And when the air conditioning broke on the ship, and we were down in and around the equator, somebody from the engineering department came down to our birthing space, you know, where we were living, and rigged up, wired up a fan next to his rack. And when I saw that, I'm like, Monty, how are you getting all this stuff done? And he just smiled at me, and he said, Jason, wherever you go, run for mayor. And he wasn't talking about it in the duplicitous way that we think about a lot of politicians. He was talking about it in the manner of just be a good person and be nice to everybody and it'll come back to you. So the second half of this story, when I was a command master chief of SEAL Team 5, uh, myself and the CO, we just commanding officer, we decided, hey, one day a week, we're going to get out of our office and go down and and have lunch with a different either platoon or department at our, our team. We had nine SEAL platoons at SEAL Team 5, and then we had, you know, four or five different departments there, too, for our support. And we did it. We'd go down, have lunch. Everybody would be there. It would be real a real stiff event. No one would really talk to us except for, you know, a couple guys that were kind of, like brown nosing is, is the word I would use. Right. But we, it, our, our intent was to find out what was going on, what the guy's concerns was, or what they thought at, at actually at the deck plates level is the term we use in the Navy. And it wasn't working. It was, it was terrible. And one day we were walking back from a meeting we had over at a, a different SEAL team, our SEAL team, and one of the platoons was in front of their high bay and they were barbecuing. And the, the commanding officer's got a green egg. He's really fired up about barbecuing MSI. So we stopped in and we started chatting with the guys about barbecue. And then the discussion rolled into um, how we started talking about what, what whatever sporting event had happened that weekend. And then we... Then all of a sudden, this wall fell down between the guys and us, and they started asking us the questions that we were trying to get out of them on all these other meetings, you know? And, and a real light bulb went off for me at that point because I was like, oh, okay, I get it. So from there forward, I, when we, we stopped scheduling these events, internally the commanding officer and myself we're like okay hey thursday's the day this week and we're just going to go walk around the command and whoever we bump into will come into the space sit down and just start chatting them up about anything but work and really what we're doing is searching around for that thing where we've got common ground with somebody and here's the thing. I don't, I, 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 I can tell you this. I could go out to one of these riots 
and find some Antifa person and sit down with them and have an honest conversation between two human beings, and I will find something that the two of us share in common. And it may be a family thing. It may be a hobby. It may be a sporting event. It, it something. You, all human beings are going to share something. And then once you have that common common thing, you now, they've moved you out of one circle into another circle, and you've developed, you're starting to develop that relationship. And when you have a relationship developed with someone, they're not just like, oh, he's one of those, you know, when you're going down the chain of command, there's a lot of things that people get frustrated with their leadership, and they're like, they don't understand us. But once they start seeing you as a human being that is also interested in the best way to cook a brisket or, um, you know, what quarterback is, is, is the same, you know, you, you have the same interests. Now you're at a different level and you can have honest, constructive discussions with people. And so that's what you have to do to open up those lines of communication. The first thing you need to do is start talking about anything but work and find that common ground and then develop that common ground and it'll develop a relationship and then boom. Now you can start to get things done. So what does that look like for if you're trying to lead up the chain of command? You need to start engaging with your leadership. And it, it can be difficult if you're not co-located because it means you've got to travel somewhere and maybe you, you might not even have access to the person. And so, okay, that's not an insurmountable obstacle because, you know, I, I'll tell you that, that if you're down at like the, a fire station and you want some of your senior leadership to come visit you, I guarantee you that senior leadership is they're just looking for reasons to get out of their office. And if you say, Hey, our guys are working really hard. We're doing this training. If you got a couple hours, could you come out and watch us train? Or, and then you, you, you know, you grill some burgers after that and just stand around and talk. That's how you develop the relationships. That's how we would do it in the military. There would be like, uh, um, Hey, this general is coming by our command or our, captain which is our 06 the colonel equivalent is is going to be coming by the command this day um okay cool let's get out let's engage them let's make sure everybody knows they're coming you know hey everybody be in the proper uniform and this is how you address them but don't hide for them please engage with them we want we want their visit to leave a positive taste in their mouth. We want them to feel like they're uh, a long lost co uh, college buddy that we haven't seen in years or some relative that's coming to our place. And that just builds up, you know, that builds up capital. So later on, if something's going on, I can go to that same leader and say, Hey boss, can you, can you help me understand why we're doing things this way? Because, from our angle, it looks like um, there's a better way to do it or it's causing unnecessary, you know, unnecessary paperwork or unnecessary steps. And then maybe you fix it or maybe you, you get your eyes open to why things are, are going the way they are. I did. Uh, I, 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 I hear everything you're saying and I agree wholeheartedly. Uh, 
when I'm at work, I, we, uh, you know, I, I do my morning paperwork and then usually around 10 o'clock I'm in the shower, get my uniform and by 1030 I'm out and uh, we do what we call rounds. So I have uh, seven fire departments that I'm responsible for. So I go and I try to hit every single fire department and just sit down with the officers and then we go into the kitchen and we all sit down and we just kind of BS a little bit. It's all not formal. First thing I ask is any good rumors? You guys hear any good stuff? And uh, we have this one-on-one uh, conversation where people are, are they they are open to be able to talk. It's all respectful. Um, and I try to do that every shift. What I find is that the guys on the shift truly want to have more engagement with the bosses, which are like my boss and my boss's boss and the fire chief. Um, and they don't see them that often. And uh, I, I, I take that back to, to, to my um, supervisors and just say, hey, you guys don't understand. They want to see you. Don't think they don't want to see you. They want to engage with you. It'll be respectful, but they have questions. And, uh, you know, you have to get out of your office. And, and we're really having a hard time getting our senior um, uh, officers out of the office and to come down and just talk to the people. I started something a few months back called Kitchen Table Talks, where I would just bring a couple of shifts in or a couple of stations in, and we just talk about stuff. You know, I started noticing some trends on social media with with the guys that I work with, where there was some negative stuff coming out, and I wanted to find out what's going on. You know, without them having to vent on social media for the world to see, vent to me, tell me what's going on, and I'll take this up the chain. And it was really successful. So I, I don't know if that's the way it is in all fire service, but I know that, that the guys in my uh, department truly want to meet and talk to the, uh, the senior officers. They see me every shift, but they want to see, you know, our duty chief and they want to see our operations chief and the fire chief. And uh, it's hard to get them out of the office. And, you know, I've had them come out a couple of times, but it's not a routine thing. And I don't know how to make that into a routine thing for these guys. Any, uh, any advice you could offer people, you know, in order to try to these upper chiefs to build the relationships with the guys on the floor that are in operations that are making the fire service move forward? Yeah, I mean, it, it may be tricky because the thing is, is like you don't know how rough their schedule is that it, it's definitely I don't think that they'll be available to get out as as much as you're able to. Um, but the, the key is, is I think that initially let everybody know, hey, we're, we're going to pry them out of the office because it's the right thing to do. And and uh, the, the first time we do it, we want to make it a positive experience for them. So let's not get too contrarian um, the first time. Save that for the second or third time that you, you get them out there. And that, that's, that's great. You're doing what you're doing because you're right at that seam where you can see both sides. So you can go back to the guys and say, hey, this policy that you don't like, Here's why we're kind of stuck with it. Either there's a lack of money or a lot of times, you know, guys despise change. And it's like this guy over here got hurt real bad. And so this, this is why it's, it's going on. And it's important that, you know, well, you're already doing that. It sounds like you're, you're filling it in and keeping those lines of communication open. I mean, and sometimes just the fact that you're listening, that's enough. People, they'll be a lot happier when they're like, hey, I'm, this is frustrating me. And you sit down and you honestly listen to them. 
that's enough and it'll satisfy people to be able to move forward um, and not just carry that angst around that they've got because they're frustrated or something. It's like, hey, I, I, I can't guarantee that I'm going to change anything, but I'll, I'll listen to you and, and um, let me take that up the chain and see what's going on. Some of the good things that, I, that I've gotten out of it is is when I became a battalion chief, I recognized right away my role is, is like you said, that I'm right on that seam. I view myself as a bridge between operations, which is the guys that are riding the fire trucks, and upper management, which are the guys that are sitting mm-hmm. behind their desk. Um, I'm that bridge, and, and if, if uh, anybody wants to know what's going on in the company – if my bosses want to know what's going on in the company, they come to me. So it's important for me to go out and talk to the guys on the floor to find out, hey, you know, what are you feeling? What's going on? What's frustrating you? What 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 questions do you have? So I can push that up the chain. I, you know, I view that if I see something happening that could develop into an issue, I want to go out right away and find out what's going on. Why are you guys upset? Why is morale low? Tell me what's going on. And then I have those answers for the bosses when they start scratching their heads and wants to know why are things happening the way they are. The other thing that I try to do for my guys is, is if there's change that I can make locally, which isn't going to violate the policy, but maybe there's a better way to do something, uh, I let those guys run with it. I said, you know, come up with it, put it on paper, give it to me, and let's let's tweak it out. And if it's working well, uh, we'll go ahead and do that. A lot of that it comes down to the way we pack hose lines. We're supposed to pack hose lines a certain way. Well, the guys have come up with a better way to get the hose lines on the apparatus to deploy them faster to a burning building. Well, that's what it's all about. If that works, we'll make that change locally, and then I'll put that on my shoulders. So if the bosses come down and have that question of why are you doing that, I said, well, I allowed them to do that because it works for where we are. And a lot of times we don't, uh, I don't have big pushback from the bosses. So the people on the floor actually feel like we've made change and uh, they're happy to move forward. It's just that I want to get these bosses out of the office, and I know their schedules are busy, but give us a day. And come down and talk to the people mm-hmm. once once a month. And, and I think that if they can build the relationships that I build with the guys, I think the fire service would be a lot more uh, happier um, when it comes to why we do the things the way we do, why we implement policies and things like that. Yeah, I mean, what you're talking about there is great on so many levels because when, when you're going to develop like an SOP, the guys doing the job should really develop the SOP and, and then giving them ownership, even if it isn't the best way to do it. Like if you were actually able to lay something out and say, yeah, this is maybe 80%, but because it was their idea and they came up with it, they're going to make up for that difference in the effort that they put out and the ownership that they feel over, you know, what they're doing, which is, is, is huge. It's like feed my kids breakfast. I, I got a nine-year-old daughter and my son will be eight here in July and I cook breakfast for them and I got to fight with them to eat it. They cook breakfast, they eat it. There's no, you know, because it's like, Hey, you just cook your breakfast. They eat the whole thing. It's not a struggle at all. It's just a, a little, analogy for that whole thing um one more thing i wanted to bring i want to give tell tell you a tale of of two admirals i worked for one admiral that uh whenever he came around he he would he was a yeller 
and he would chew people out. In fact, we came up with a nickname for it. We called it being flame sprayed. So if the admiral would come to visit your command, everyone would ask you when they were done, like, oh, hey, did you get, did you get flame sprayed? You know, meaning did you, did you get yelled at? Well, people would work hard for him because they were afraid of getting yelled at. Then the next admiral that took over, he had a completely different demeanor and presence. And he didn't yell. And people worked hard for him, and I worked hard for him, because I, I kind of looked at him like he was my grandfather, and it, it would be my, my darkest day would be the day that I disappointed that man. And so, you know, who do you work harder for? The person you're worried about disappointing or the person that's going to yell at you? Everyone's going to work harder for that person that they're worried about disappointing. And how do you become the kind of leader that your subordinates don't want to disappoint? You do that by first not yelling at them, listening, and actually developing relationships with them so you, they, they know that you're concerned about them. They know that you're the same guy that, that you know, likes to use the green egg to cook a brisket or uh, enjoys to go fishing on the weekends or whatever. You've developed those relationships with them and you're actually concerned with seeing them do better. That's, and, and I, it, it's funny because when I first started the job, I would always say, you know, in my morning briefing, I'd send out an email to all the captains and my morning briefing would be like, good morning, you know, I'll be your battalion chief today um, <clears throat> and go on, on through my thing. And I've, I've probably within the last year or so that uh, I've changed that to instead of like, I am going to be your battalion chief today. It's like today, uh, you know, I'll be working for you. Uh, I just kind of changed the meaning of is that, that I'm not, not necessarily just your boss, but I'm also working for you. And I'm here to make sure that you get what you need and then you could come to me and tell me if something's not right. Um, I don't want to be the yeller. Now, the guys know that if they do something wrong, you know, then we're going to talk about it. And, and uh, we, we bring that out in our hot washes or in our after action reports. Um but I learned over time that, you know, you want to praise in public. And I talked about this uh, on, on one of my last podcasts is that we praise in public and all the things that we do well. We talk about things that we could do better as a whole. But if I had a, a specific issue with somebody in particular, then that's done in private. So they have the chance to say face in front of their people. And I'm not turning into that guy who's kind of a, a mean asshole. Um, I want to make sure that they know that, you know, hey, this is what you did wrong. This is what I saw. Why did you do it this way? This is probably a better way to do it, but we do that in private. Um, I think when we talk about building relationships, I get a lot of credibility from that. No, they know that I'm not going to call them out uh, and demean them in front of their people, and I think that they will be more inclined to work harder for me uh, to get the job done. I know the guys in my battalion would would lose sleep if they didn't do their job correctly on a fire uh, as opposed to uh, – trying to do everything the right way and, and, and giving it a hundred percent effort. And I think that that speaks volumes when it comes to building the relationships with, uh, with, uh, your people as well as you building relationship with them. Absolutely. What? Absolutely. You know, um, 
There, I mean, there's a time and place for yelling, and usually it's under a high-pressure situation where you need to increase the volume of your voice so that someone can hear you. And sometimes people, they will get a little bit overwhelmed and locked up by a situation, and, and you need to bark at them to move from one position to another, right? It's, 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 uh, it, it, you know, I'm sure it's the same in the fire service as it is in the SEAL teams. People will get sucked into a detail, and they're just not hearing anything else. Then you gotta, you gotta, you know, increase your uh, the volume there. But there really, as I I think about it, right, there really isn't any reason to yell in a low in a low stress situation where safety isn't involved. And in, in fact, it's really demonstrating that you just don't have a good handle on your emotions. It's uh, it's something you know. I've been thinking about a lot lately. That especially dealing with my kids because parenting is leadership. You know, if they're screaming in the house and I yell at them to stop screaming at the house, I'm teaching them to scream at the house because I'm I'm yelling. You know. I I uh, I try not to 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 yell. Um, and I tell guys, you know, I give them a hard time. I was like, Hey, look, you know, when we get on the scene of that fire, stop screaming on the radio. You know, they know I'm joking. Um, oh. my guys are very yeah. calm when they're, when they're giving these on scene reports. Um, and I tell them, I said, these, the citizens have called 911. If you show up and act like a fool, well, who does 911 call? We have to be that calm while all this turmoil is happening. And, and if I'm on the radio and I'm yelling and screaming, well, then that's telling you that either I'm not in control or this situation is so terrible now you're going to start to get tunnel vision. We run into the issue of, you know, somebody could start getting hurt. So I, I try, I will not yell. If it's a safety issue, you know, if somebody's going to get hurt, I may put a stop to it right away. But for the most part, when I'm on the radio, I have to be monotone. I have to be calm. And I, I get a copy of all my calls, you know, that are recorded so I can listen to how did I sound on the radio? How did my guy sound on the radio? It's the same thing with parenting. I find that being a parent is way harder than being a boss at work. Um, you know, I've got yeah. a I've got a twelve year old and I've got a fifteen year old who'll be sixteen this year. So that opened up a whole new avenue. But it's funny when I when I look at my kids and I'm like, Why did you just do that? You know, and they'll turn around and say, Well, Dad, why are you yelling at me? I'm like, I'm not yelling at you. You've never heard me yell at you. <laughs> so their yeah. their feeling of what they think yelling is 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 not yelling at all. Um so I think being a parent uh, helps me to be a better boss at work, you know, to be able to deal with, you know, a different set of problems. And then I can bring that calmness that I try to portray at work to bring it home. So I think that they both go hand in hand. Uh, um, luckily, you know, my kids are into the video games and, and stuff. It's, it's not as loud around the house as it used to be. Yeah, yeah. Um yeah, and you know, the nice thing is parenting just gives you practice and all that. And, and the context of, of me really talking about yelling is, is like, you, there's no reason to yell on the radio. Mm. But it, it would be like just yelling at someone verbally so they can hear you. Um, you know, like, the only reason I should yell at my kids is because they, they like, they're out in the streets like, hey, get out of the street or something like that. To, um yeah. Now, when we talk about, you know, we, we want to tie this kind of all together and we talked about 
you know, with building relationships and, and, and also with humility, I want to touch a little bit on ego before we wrap this up, uh, in the fire service with any type a personality, any profession that you get in where you have to have this, uh, this extrovert type personality, um, ego plays a big part and, and everybody wants to be the best at their position. And how do you keep that ego in check so as to not kind of go beyond what your capabilities are or how do you recognize what your capabilities are and that, Hey, I'm, I'm not good at doing that. I need to be better at that. How do you put that ego in check? Because I know my feeling is, is that if you don't keep your ego in check, that's going to result in injuries or death or losing leadership credibility with your people. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a dichotomy, right? It's, it's a constant balance. Because if you didn't, if you weren't ambitious, you wouldn't attempt to be any better. And so it's just a double-edged sword where your ego is, is, hey, it's what drives you to be the best firefighter there is. But it's also the thing that could get you to the point where you feel like you don't have room to improve and, and you're at the top of your game. And so I... I feel like making a mental checklist where I am saying to myself, I can do better. A good person is always looking to improve and they're looking at themselves first. That helps me turn down that little voice inside my head that, that is, you know, my ego that that's easy to get bruised and the feelings hurt and say, well, you know, I'm the best at this and, and, and this, this is how you do it. You know, and it's a mental checklist and the mental checklist where I'm feeding my ego by saying, Hey, this is what, this is what right looks like. A good person is always looking to improve and they're always looking at themselves first. That takes the sting out of being able to hear, you know, some constructive criticism from anybody or looking at stuff and saying, "Well, this is this is how I can do better." And that's uh, it's funny because when we teach <clears throat> with my company uh, that I work with on the side, we get evaluations when we teach around around the country, and we'll re- we'll go through all the evaluations and all the good evaluations. That's fine. We'll put those in a pile. But I'm always looking for that evaluation that says, "Hey, I didn't like this, or this didn't meet my expectations." And I focus on that and I look at it and, and I try to look at it through constructive criticism of, of why did that person feel that way about what we were teaching and what did I what didn't I do to meet that person's expectations or how can I change or tweak the program that we're doing so it, it, it meets all expectations. And you're not going to be able to please everybody and that I know, but I've never taken – uh, constructive criticism about the way I do things and just say, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. I've been doing this a long time. I try to improve myself uh, with that constructive criticism. And I think that if we can take that uh, information that when people are giving con- respectable constructive criticism, take that so you can improve yourself in your job or your, your everyday life, I think that would help to tamp down the the ego that I'm better than everybody or I hold this position, so therefore I know it all. And again, that goes back into the complacency and everything else. Yeah, absolutely. And the the hardest, you know, the hardest criticism to take is from someone that maybe you don't respect because they don't really work in your industry or they're 
maybe they're not the best performer, but that doesn't necessarily invalidate anything they've got to say. And so you just, yeah, you've got to take an honest look at everything you're doing because you're just, if you think about it, like what is, what sharpens a knife? What sharpens your ax, right? Something that's harder and it's scraping on it and it's keeping it sharp. And so if you think that, I am this damage control axe and I am going to stay sharp by constantly applying friction. And that means constructive criticism to get better Then that helps. And I think that that, I uh, love, and that is my favorite logo anywhere is the, the, the fire services cross damage control axis. And I don't know if there's another word for those axes. That's what we call the things in the Navy is the damage control axe. It's and they're they're awesome. We uh, yes, and uh, I think that uh, I think what we'll do is we'll leave it here. Uh, we'll 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 wrap the okay. show up. We'll wrap this show up here. Um, the information that you have provided today is phenomenal. Uh, again, I I had the pleasure of hearing you talk, and the information that you uh, provided allowed me to take a look at the way you your experiences in, in the military and how you've kind of shaped that into everyday life and to, you know, not only for the police department, but the fire department and, and just everyday business as well. There's lessons to be learned. And, and uh, I've, I've, I've been trying to seek out that information. That's the, the piece of the puzzle I don't have is, is what you guys learn in the military. And I, I think that you guys train and teach people how to be leaders you give them that foundation and then they can build off of that and um for the most part we have some of that in the fire service but not how i'd like to see it um it's difficult to to put together this an officer candidate school um you know when you're giving them five days of officer candidate school and you give them their white helmet you give them their their collar pins and you push them out in the world and say, okay, go be a, a lieutenant or a captain. Um, I think that we're, we're painfully under-trained to be leaders because we didn't learn that from recruit class. We learned how to be firefighters, but we didn't learn how to be uh, those potential leaders as we move forward. And, and I think that this information and the information that I can get uh, and, and put bring it all in and, and read books and things like that is, is a step in the right direction. So I, I appreciate you reaching out to me uh, to wanting to be on my show. It's an honor to have you here. Like I said, I, I, I had the pleasure of hearing you talk, and the fact that you had sent me a message saying, hey, I'd love to be on your podcast just kind of blew me away. So, again, Jason, uh, thanks for being here. Yeah, David, thanks for, for having me. And um, I, I, it's, it's great just to be part of this discussion, and, and it's discussion podcasts like yours – and discussions like you're having is what's just going to make us all get better at this whole leadership thing. Cause it's a difficult thing to teach. I mean, because it's not necessarily an exact formula that you can sit in a, a classroom and point to a whiteboard and say this, this, and this, a lot of it comes through um, internal mentorship and, uh, and, and the most powerful le- leadership lessons. A lot of us will ever learn are, are come from people who've, taken the time to mentor us uh and those could be leaders we work for they could be people that are you know lateral to us when you discuss problems with other leaders that are your same rank and how they're working through it and how all that works so that's that's fantastic 
Well, again, uh, and that, that mentor, the, the mentor, that's a whole nother podcast. We had one of those a while back and that's, that's good stuff of being able mm-hmm. to actually, uh, you know, to learn from people or, you know, that are the same rank or have time in, or even people that are just from a whole different walk of life, uh, that, that approach their style of leadership a little different than, than you and you can learn from. So again, thanks for being on the show and, uh, you know, this will be up, uh, here in a couple of days and, and, uh, I have a, a strong feeling that it's going to be uh, well downloaded. I can track all that stuff. So again, Jason, thanks for being here. Fantastic, David. Let me know so I can uh, share it on my social media as well. And uh, looking forward to it. You got it. Be safe and have a good day. All right. You too.